0: Practice is a powerful tool for learning, and when you stop to look at what you do on a daily or weekly basis, you'll see how common and natural practice is in so many realms. But too often learning businesses don't incorporate practice into their portfolio of offerings. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is The Leading Learning Podcast.
1: Jeff, as you know, probably all too well, we have a typical cycle on the Leading Learning Podcast. We tend to have a you and me episode, then you do an interview, then I do an interview, and then we repeat that sort of ad nauseum, not ad nauseum, but- (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope it's not ad nauseum. (laughs) But I thought that today we could mix things up just a tiny bit, nothing too radical, but I thought I'd like to interview you because I know that you're engaged in a, a project, a project that involves practice, and I thought it might make for an interesting topic of discussion.
0: Well, I'm I'm game. We'll see how good, a, good of an interviewee I actually am. That's right.
1: Turning the tables
0: on you here.
1: So in this episode, number 377, we're going to focus on practice, but in a very specific way. So rather than take the learning science-backed view of practice, we're going to take a practical case study-based approach. So Jeff, I think to start things off, what I'd like to ask you to do is to outline this performance project that I know you have going on.
0: Sure, and I'll preface by saying this, this did not start out as a project. It wasn't until I was kind of into it that I realized I was into something and maybe...
1: Well, that was going to be one of my questions, <laughs> was whether this started as a project or whether it evolved into a project. So i am got kind of to scratch that question. But anyhow, tell us about what turned out to be a performance project.
0: Sure. So as some listeners may have picked up somewhere along the way or just in, in following me in general, one of my, I guess this would be an avocation, it's a little stronger than a hobby, is playing the guitar and writing songs. So I... I am comfortable describing myself as a singer songwriter <laughs> I guess <laughs> feels a little presumptuous <laughs> at times but I, I do in fact do that I have written many songs and I, and I play them and perform them and I have been doing that on and off since I was a teenager basically but um, are you
1: saying you're no longer a teenager?
0: Believe it or not I, I know looks can be deceiving but i am I am no longer a teenager and I will say too that there was a period of time I entered into after sort of young adulthood when things like career and family and things like that came along where I did significantly less singing and songwriting. And then at some point a few years ago, I started picking it back up and saying, I'd I'd really like to get serious about this. It's been a long time since I've written much new material, wasn't really satisfied with the quality of the, the material I was writing at the times that I did finally manage to put a little bit of time in it. And so, a couple of things occurred to me. One is that you know I, I have written some decent things in the past. People seem to like, and um, just as part of what I would like to have, I guess, documented from my life, I, I wanted to finally professionally record those. You know, not just sitting in the the garage or the or the guest bedroom with a digital recording setup, but but actually getting somebody who knows how to do production to work with me and to record an, an album of music. So I decided that, and I've also decided along the the same time that I just really wanted to be much more disciplined about writing songs and becoming a great performer of songs. And so... A great performer. A great performer. I would like to be at least an above average performer of songs. I do a lot of open mic nights. That's something we can talk about. And and you can tell, you know, when people show up at open mic nights, for some of them, it's, you know... Picking up the guitar for the first time in, in a year, and I just feel like going out to play some songs, and they can be you know perfectly good and enjoyable, but you know they're going to be a little rough around the edges and, and that sort of thing. And then you have the people come in who you can tell maybe they're either you know playing in a band and it's just a way for them to go out and do a little bit of extra or try something new on their own, or they've just genuinely been practicing you know to show up at the open mic. So you you know you get those differences in, in performers. Certainly, I mean, we for example went to see. Bruce Springsteen a few few months ago, and to me it was remarkable just like how professional and polished a performer he actually is. I mean, you can t- obviously the guy's a legend and he's been doing this forever, but you can tell he still takes it very seriously. And I uh, bet that, that that band is putting in a lot of practice time. So, I guess I'm belaboring the performance point, but um, that was important to me along with improving my my writing skills.
1: So I'll try to summarize based both maybe on what you said and maybe what I already know outside of this conversation of of what you're trying to achieve, but you have this goal of getting better at the performance of your own songs. And so, and coupled with that, you had this idea of going into a studio to record and all of that then gave you the idea of focusing more on on practicing. And so then as part of that practice, you have been going out and performing as often as you can.
0: I have been to the extent that my, my kids are probably wondering where, where I am a lot of the times, you know, that we live in an area where there are plenty of open mic opportunities and other types of performance uh, opportunities, even if you're not like, you know, professionally booked to play. And I've just started trying to get to really every one of those that I can as many times a week as I can to just continually play songs that i may have written long ago but just want to be much much better at at playing and i've been modifying those um and and trying to make them better songs but then also new songs um, that uh, that i'm creating and just getting out there and playing in front of an audience as much as possible and we can talk about sort of what surrounds that as well but that's the main thing just getting out and and, and playing as much as i possibly can
1: well one question i had was around how you think about the balance of playing newer songs, songs that maybe you've just written versus songs that you wrote a decade ago. Do you try to balance that either kind of within an open mic evening, so some evening you might do a conscious choice of it's going to be sort of 50-50 newer and older or do you tend to think about it across different open mics like Thursday's open mic I'm going to play sort of the the oldies but goodies at least in your, you know, to yourself you know those? Or do you um, try to, you know, and then Friday, maybe you're going to play the newer thing. So do you think about that balance of kind of the things that you know better versus the things that are maybe a little bit more difficult for you to perform?
0: I definitely think about it. I'm very intentional about it. It doesn't play out in any truly formulaic way. and I, And I think this is probably, I suspect it's true for most people with whatever they're trying to get better at in their lives that you know they'll think about the different contexts that they're going into more or less consciously and and then try to calibrate you know for that context as to what they're going to try, what they're going to practice, what they're going to perform in that particular circumstance. So I do always try to play something at least a bit newer whenever I'm going to play in front of an audience. That said, I want to balance it with as much as i'm willing to sort of put myself out there kind of without a net and try things i also want to have some reasonable sense that i'm going to be able to to do it successfully or at least you know close enough to successfully that i'm not going to you know go home and feel terrible <laughs> the rest of the the night and that can vary because in some cases that might be a brand new song you know something i've never played publicly before which it can, you have to get in front of an audience at some point so at some point you have to decide i'm ready to do that a lot of times recently it's been taking songs that are quite old, or maybe you know, at least a year or two old if if not older than that, that I've changed in some fundamental way, added some part to, I've been, you know, working with a producer around this to kind of come up with new approaches and fills and things like that that are actually making the songs much more difficult for me to play than they used to be. And so I have to have to get comfortable at trying those out in, in front of people as well. So And then it depends on where I'm going to play, because you know, like I said, I do a lot of open mics, because that's just sort of an easy thing to fit into the schedule and and get out there and do. But like you know, one open mic I go to is very casual. You know, it's uh, people who are definitely sort of more hobbyists, just there, kind of sitting around, chatting, playing a little music, uh, kind of in the background. In that context, I'm willing to try pretty much anything. Like that's my completely work without a net environment. If I completely crash and burn. I don't care that much i'm not gonna i'm not gonna feel bad about it but you know i was at an open mic just last night where the talent level was really high and there's like that's a different context and and you want to feel like you're sort of can rise to that caliber of the people around you and it's going to affect the the choices of of what i play in that particular environment
1: at tagoras we're experts in the global business of lifelong learning and we use our expertise to help clients better understand their markets, connect with new customers, make the right investment decisions, and grow their learning businesses. We achieve these goals through expert market assessment, strategy formulation, and platform selection services. If you're looking for a partner to help your learning business achieve greater reach, revenue, and impact, learn more at tagoras.com services. So I'm not a singer songwriter, as you know, Jeff, but just want to make that clear to listeners. But uh, so I don't actually know the answer to this. I'm curious to know when you're you're talking about you know new songs, so there are lyrics and then there's the music that goes along with it. How much of that do you memorize? And again, I'm sort of thinking about the bigger learning picture here, right? We're going to take sort of these lessons learned from your example of of practicing in this specific context and, and hopefully tease out some big bigger picture things that we can talk about. And and so I'm thinking about things like cognitive load. And so mm. sort of like I'm thinking, you know, if it's a new song with new lyrics and new music, that's a pretty heavy cognitive lift to, to try to do that. I mean, are you memorizing those those things? And so when you perform, you're essentially drawing on your memory to do it.
0: That's certainly my ideal is to have memorized things. But, um, you know, I think like with anything else, so, sometimes you need that job aid, to uh, get you through. And in addition to open mics, I also participate in a a songwriter circle. This happens on Zoom these days, sort of a vestige of COVID times. In some cases, like with that group, if I've got something really new, because that's often the place where if it's something brand new, whether it's a new part in a song or a completely new song, I will often be looking at, at a lyric sheet or a lyric and music sheet when I'm playing that because I just have not committed it to memory yet. But when I stand up in front of an audience, and not everybody's this way. I mean, I definitely see people play with you know their iPad or whatever in front of them that has the stuff on it, I'd prefer to have memorized or be close enough to memory that I don't think I'm gonna mess anything up. That said, it's always you know surprising when you're actually performing, you know even if you are not like consciously nervous or experiencing experiencing any anxiety, which I feel like I rarely do these days because I've done it enough. It still affects you, and it, it'll, you'll still end up, you know, tripping up, you know, not hitting a, a string in the way you meant to, or I'll forget the words to my own songs <laughs> or screw up the words to my own songs all the time, and you know, even though I've sung them for years and, and years, so it is an interesting thing. There's something about it's the cognitive load, and then it's just it's again it's the context,
1: it's the varied practice, it's right? The varied practice, right, where you, you know. need to try it out in different situations because, right, your bedroom versus yeah. big a big stage difference. in front of other people. <laughs> Yeah, big difference. So I'm also curious, do you think about cadence? And again, I'm sort of thinking about what you and I both know about learning. So I'm thinking a little bit about things like spaced repetition and effortful retrieval. That's effortful Mm -hmm. to say, effortful retrieval. But are, are you thinking about, okay, well, really, it would be better in this sort of what's turned into a project to do kind of three open mics you know every week over the course of three months versus you know 21 days in a row of open mics or you know, are you thinking at all about that when you're looking at it?
0: I do think about it. I mean, and some of it is just the practicalities of what's available and you know what fits my schedule and, and things like that. But my aim because I am very much aware of spaced repetition, spaced practice, is to try to do multiple performances a week whether that's an open mic or something more extensive for those to be they're going to be different because you know you're not going to have an open mic in the same place uh, night after night or in most cases you're not going to perform in the same place night after night so that will be broken up you know, my preference is for there to be you know a little bit of time like it's not monday tuesday wednesday thursday maybe it's monday wednesday friday that i'm doing that just to have a little bit of that rest time in between i think if the almost like I'm a runner, too, you know, and I don't run every day because I want my body to recover and to, you know, benefit from the exertion it's had so that the next time I do it, I'm that much more prepared. And I think the same thing applies with just about any type of practice or performance. So, yeah, I I don't want to do sort of crammed type stuff. I've often played at this uh, annual event, which I still do. And um, I mean, one of the things I liked about it was it sort of got me focused back again on, on songwriting. But what would often happen is I'd end up spending the, the two or three days before that out in the garage, just like practicing as much as I possibly could before showing up at that event, which was better than doing nothing. But it wasn't ideal for, you know, how to really prepare for getting up on a stage and being comfortable in front of an audience.
1: So we know that feedback is very important for improved performance. And so here you are putting in all these practice hours um, with the goal of improved performance. So what does feedback look like in this context? Is it more indirect that sort of oh your grandmother made cookies sort of uh sound that i've heard that used in poetry situations so it's like oh (laughs) so it's sort of like oh you know like that just sound of satisfaction Uh you know is it sort of that or how enthusiastic or unenthusiastic the applause is or do you actually get verbal feedback from those situations that then helps you improve
0: yeah, it's it's definitely a little of both. And there's an extra dimension. And I think we even have sort of said this type of thing before on the podcast, when you're practicing a musical instrument, and there are other analogous things you could be doing, I think, but the feedback from a musical instrument is very direct. Because if you hit a wrong note, unless you're completely tone deaf, you, you know you hit a wrong note, like you're getting instant feedback from the instrument itself. And you get that from your voice too. If you're, you know, it all sort of tuned into that, you, you know whether you're you know, singing well or not. So you've kind of got that built into the system. But then, yeah, when you're standing in front of an audience, I mean, A, you're looking out at the audience and it depends on the lighting. Like in some cases, the lighting is such that you really can't see like people's faces or, or how they're reacting, but you can still usually get a sense of the room, you know. And like last night, I was playing at a place, it's a bar, and the musicians on stage are sort of backdrop for the most part. and everybody's talking and chatting and drinking their drinks and everything. If they happen to turn away from that at all and pay attention to you, that's a pretty good sign because, you know, they're usually not going to do that. And if they happen to be watching you the whole time, then you're like, well, I've got some connection here. But then usually, yeah, you know, once you come off the the stage with a performance like that, A, there's going to be applause and, you know, it's you can usually tell a little difference between just polite applause and a little more enthusiasm there. And then typically there's gonna be a certain amount of people coming up and saying, hey, I really like that last song, or you know, you know, great stuff, that sort of thing. Some of that's purely polite, particularly if you're playing around other musicians, everybody's gonna say that to each other. But you know, sometimes you'll have just somebody random from the audience come up and say, wow, you know, lo- love that, that was that was great. And those are the nights where you feel like, oh, I'm doing something right.
1: So to use the learning world again here, I mean, it- what you've talked about so far sort of sounds like the smile sheet equivalent. It's kind of like whether people liked it or not. So are you actually getting feedback that helps you improve performance out of
0: this? That's an interesting question. I mean, I will, you know, at times try out variations on songs. Like, you know, I play the guitar, so some things I will strum, some things I will finger pick, and sometimes I will change that up and play a song that I typically strum with finger picking and, and vice versa and just see what the reaction is to that. Sometimes I'll play you know, much more rhythmically. Sometimes I'll change the key that I'm playing in. So in, in those sorts of situations, I can usually get what feels like some relatively concrete feedback around, did that change work? Is that something that you know I should do or not do again based on what I've gotten from the audience?
1: So we've talked Pretty specifically about what you're experiencing, what you're trying, if you had to think about what you've learned from this project so far, that would apply more broadly to learning. What comes to mind?
0: You know, I think with the learning anything, there's always the difference between kind of knowing something intellectually, you know, getting to the point where maybe you're competent with application of it. And then just getting to the point where it's like, it's built into you. You know, you can just you can just flat out do it. And I think practice typically gets you from knowledge to competence, I think. And then a lot of practice gets you from competence to true like fluency and, and fluidity. And one of the things that, you know, I take home every night from playing anywhere is, my gosh, I've got to practice a lot more. Mm. I mean, it just—I'll I'll never be done practicing.
1: Mm. I've heard you talk about this as sort of your mini ten thousand hours. Mm. Um, so m- maybe we can unpack that a little bit. I mean, ten thousand hours—that was certainly popularized by Malcolm Gladwell, sort of drawing on um, I think some Eric on and Anders Ericsson's work sort of, uh, yeah.
0: around practice. Really, I mean, that's what he, he really and, focuses on.
1: And actually, they were specifically looking at musicians, as I recall.
0: Musicians were a, a big part of Erickson's work. Uh, he looked particularly at violin players and you know, the, the level of seriousness and, and practice. What Gladwell picked up on, which I don't think came out of Ericsson, I think it just came out of Gladwell being a storyteller and a reporter, is the Beatles in Hamburg in the early days of the band and how they just played, I mean, hours and hours each day, day in and day out, just for years really. And that's really how the Beatles became. I mean, because whatever you think of the Beatles, I mean, they had their act together. They were tight musically, harmonically, everything. And that was just from a ton of practice. And, you know, the idea is that you need this sort of equivalent of 10 years or 10,000 hours of practice to really get to that expert level, that sort of fluidity and fluency that I was talking about. Now, that's controversial. A lot of people have sort of said, no, that's not right. And Gladwell hyped it and you know all sorts of other stuff but still it's I think a useful tool rule of thumb heuristic however you want to look at it for just how important practice is regardless of what your starting talent level is.
1: And I'd be curious to get your thoughts on what value you see in practice because you just you know you've talked about coming home every night and thinking wow there's just still so much practice to do you I think we're just saying you know that you have to keep practicing right that's kind of the takeaway from 10,000 hours, because it's not like you would hit, even if you buy into the 10,000 hours, it's not like you hit 10,000 hours, and then you never have to practice mm-hmm. again to to keep being a good musician. But so what value do you see in sort of having a project focus around practice? So you have this goal of, of getting better before going into a studio. Do you feel like that helps focus the practice? And kind of what what do you do then when the project ends, but you still need to keep the practice going?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely helped in this case to have that that goal. And I think that's so true in life just in general to sort of have deadlines or you know specific places that you're trying to reach. In all honesty, I had started doing something very practice oriented before I got to this point and then I think maybe the adding in this ultimate goal to it sort of notched things up several steps because for, for two or three years before this, and I think I've talked about this or at least written about it in, in, in different places, I basically said, I'm gonna get up every morning and spend 15 to 30 minutes focused on songwriting. I'm gonna listen to a couple of songs that I've never listened to before from singer songwriters and I'm gonna write for at least 10 or 15 minutes and even though it's just one word, I'm mean, at least putting the time into doing that, and I'd already been doing that, but that was sort of indefinite. And to be honest, I planned to keep doing that, you know, indefinitely. But then putting in this idea of okay, here's a project, here's a goal that really defines this and, and takes it somewhere definitely kicked things up several notches and brought that focus in that I think that I think is so important. I mean, you don't, you can't you don't want to I think always have that, or it's difficult to always have this project, you know, that, that you're working on, sometimes you just need to be able to not exactly coast, but just do the work. Um, but then every once in a while to build in these points in time and achievement that you're going to try to get to, I think is extremely useful. I don't know exactly what the research is around that. I suspect there probably is research saying, yes, You you know, if you want to sort of keep going up, we've talked about the S-curve before on the podcast. There's probably something of this in the S curve that you, you start to plateau after a while and you gotta you have to have something that then kicks you up to that next level. So
1: part of what I hear and what you're sharing, Jeff, is just a very personal story of learning, a very personal story of, of practice. But I think that can be valuable to us. I mean, we do everything at Leading Learning for learning business professionals. We consider ourselves to be learning business professionals. But I think it sometimes gets lost in all of the work that we're doing that we are also learners. And so I think when we remember that we're learners, when we take time to let ourselves really focus on learning something, it helps us empathize with the learners that we serve. And it helps us realize what are some of the most effective ways to support learning like practice.
0: And and I think, you know, so much of it is just being conscious and intentional in our own lives, because we're all engaging in practice all the time. You know, this just happened, the the story that we just shared for me just happened to be an instance where I recognized I was doing that and was intentional and conscious about it. I think we probably all, if we just sort of step back and look at our lives, realize that there are probably areas where we are consistently engaged in, in, in practice, and maybe we want to be a little more intentional and conscious about them, but then you know, back to this whole world of uh, the learning business, continuing education, professional development. I mean, we just know from our own experience and having worked with so many organizations for so many years that often the practice opportunities aren't really built into those. I mean, I think there's an assumption that if you have a webinar or somebody shows up at a conference and you know they they get the knowledge that the presenter or whoever is going to give to them, that they're gonna take it upon themselves to go back and and apply that and practice it, which that might be their intention, you know, but as they say, the the road to hell is paved with with good (laughs) intentions. You know, people get back to the office, it doesn't happen. So I, I think for learning businesses to get more intentional and conscious about the role of practice relative to the learning experiences they're offering and how might they help to make those practice opportunities available. Whether it's something as simple as a, you know, an assessment or an exam at the, you know, at the end of, of some course of, of learning that they're offering, or whether it's actually you know, documenting and following up on good practice opportunities that can be applied back in the workspace. So just, there are a lot of ways that learning businesses could be thinking about the role of practice and then implementing it better than, than we see happen.
1: Yeah. Metacognition. I mean, this comes to mind, right? This is this idea Mm -hmm. of we're going to pay attention to how we're thinking. And so when it is learning, it's about, you know, how and why do we learn better at certain times than at others? And even just hearing you share your story, Jeff, that you, it sounds like have potentially had this realization that having the more specific goal is really going to allow you to maybe carve out a larger chunk of time to devote to practicing than you would have if it had just been this sort of ongoing daily practice and just having that moment of realization like that then allows you to know okay good well then the next time I really want to you know up my game and and whatever else maybe I need to provide a project so it's I think it's this awareness if we can bring it to our own lives and what we're learning and then think about how do we translate into how we better serve our learners I mean essentially this is all about practicing what we preach right
0: yeah definitely definitely
1: and I will mention, too, that we have a new executive briefing on practice that's been put out recently. That's called Practice Makes Profit, the Business and Learning Case for Practice. You can go to the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 377 to find out how you can get access to that executive briefing. It takes more of that learning science-backed approach to practice. This today was obviously much more of a personal story of practice, but we think both are very powerful. And obviously that title's playing a little bit with the phrase practice makes perfect, which I think we've all heard before. And as we've been talking, I've been thinking about, as I often like to do, sort of the the linguistic underpinnings of things. And if I think about verb tenses, in verb tenses, perfect means something that's in the past, something that's been done. Mm. And so in that sense, practice is about perfect. It's about things that are done. It's about doing things. And so I I think to me that was a little aha moment there around just kind of practice makes perfect. It's around ties to this act. We have to take action. We have to perform something. We have to apply something.
0: Definitely. And of course, you know, because we did change it to practice makes profit, as you might expect. And as the subtitle says, I mean, we're talking about this from a business perspective too, that there is a there is a strong business case for offering practice, which we go into in, in that briefing.
1: Right. And to us and to our mind, you know, for learning businesses, the learning case and the business case are tightly intertwined oh, yeah. because, yeah. you know, what benefits the learner and practice clearly does. We have lots of research and science showing that if you're producing those more effective product offerings for your learners, then that does represent revenue for your learning business. And so then there's the strong business case to go along with it. But again, we encourage you to check out that executive briefing for a different look at practice than what we offered today.
0: Practice is a powerful tool for learning. And when you stop to look at what you do on a daily or weekly basis, you'll see how common and natural practice is in so many realms. But too often learning businesses don't incorporate practice into their portfolio of offerings.
1: And we want to help change that. So at leadinglearning.com slash episode 377, you'll find a link to the executive briefing we just recently published called Practice Makes Profit, The Business and Learning Case for Practice. And at leadinglearning.com slash episode 377, you'll also find show notes, a full transcript, and options for subscribing
0: to the podcast if you're not already subscribed. And we'd be grateful if you'd take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, especially if you enjoy the show. So Lisa and I personally appreciate reviews and ratings, and they help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business.
1: And please spread the word about leading learning. You can do that in a one-on-one note or a conversation with a colleague, or you can do it through social media. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com episode 377, you'll find links to connect with us on X, formerly
0: Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.